Jeff Perlman, what's going on, my friend? I appreciate you doing this. I'm a, you know, I'm a happy guy. My, my, my book has been made into a TV show and my Delaware Blue Hens are uh, in the NCAA tournament. Father, New York Times bestselling author, podcaster, an actor now on the HBO show Winning Time. Am I missing anything? You know, uh, rapper, knitter, <laughs> dancer, silk scarf maker. Yes, you do it all then. I, I can do everything and nothing. You're a West Coast guy now, maybe a little Hollywood. You're a New Yorker at heart. When did you move yeah. out to California? I moved out in 2014. What food do you miss the most? Oh, double pizza bagels. No doubt and, about it. And how about this? What food does California do better than the Big Apple? They do uh, pokey better by okay. far. Ooh, okay. Both are amazing. Um, I feel like you can get a bountiful array of Asian foods from the different countries uh, as far as your, your Korean food sushi uh there's a lot of really good asian food that where i was living in new york wasn't as good yeah so, where'd you live in the city did you live in the city or was it always upstate i lived well i lived in the city in union square but when we moved here i was living in new rochelle but i'm from mayo pack small town mayo pack here i lived in uh by union square for like six years where'd you hang out mostly around right. union square were you a big hangout guy party guy or not really i was not i was i was uh we went to the coffee shop a lot that was a good place it closed unfortunately but I, um, no, at that point I was married. So like I, with a little, well, I'm a kid on the way. So I was not at that point. Growing up, was it always sports writer, sports reporter, robust? It was from a certain age. I mean, when I was a kid, I love, the thing I always say, you know how like, I'm actually being serious about this. I never really state, say this, but it's true. People say like, so what was the moment? You know, like, what was the moment? It's really a flawed question because you don't actually know what the moment was, right? But you have moments and like, for me, when I was a kid, we would get the New York Times. And in my house, you were not allowed to bring the newspaper into the bathroom, right? Except the sports section, because nobody else read it except me. So my mom would let me take the sports section into the bathroom. I'd be sitting there on the toilet, reading the New York Times sports section. That was very important to me. My local library, the Mayo Pack Library, there was one librarian who always, um, when they got new sports biographies or autobiographies in, she would call my house and say, hey, Jeff, just so you know, the new Ron Guidry biography is in, the new Bo Jackson biography is in. And I'd run down, it was a mile and I was a runner. I'd run to the library, pick up the, hey, Jeff, pick up the book, <laughs> run back. So like, there used to be, there used to be a sports talk radio show where I was growing up, WVUD. It was talking sports with Tim Osbury and Joe Bacchino. Every Sunday morning, I would always call in. Joe Bacchino at the time was the assistant general manager for the New York Rangers. He was a co-host on the show, this quaint little show. I would call in, hey, this is Jeff from Mayo Pack. And Joe Bacchino would always go, my man, my man, my man. And one time they let me come into the studio and sit and broadcast a show with them. So, like, you have these little moments in life that guide you places. When you call the Sports Talk Radio, would, uh, did you record it on the radio? Because that's what I used to do with the fan. I used to call Steve Summers, Mike and the Mad Dog, and I would wait. You hear the ksh, and then you hit record. Did you ever do that? I did. Of course I did. <laughs> I used to have recordings of me. I don't know where they are. And... um and then also when I was at the University of Delaware, I was the co-host of the Blue Hen Sports Cage, which was the sports talk show nobody listened to. And I would record those. And I used to have all these old tapes of me on the radio that vanished. I, I always admire you because you got your dream job at such a young, young age. I think you were like 23 or 24 when you got the job at Sports Illustrated. What was your first article? Well, the first article I ever got in SI, I was still a writer at the National Tennessean and I was applying to SI. And they said the at the Tennessee, and I mainly was not a sports writer. I wanted to be, but I wasn't. So I applied and applied and applied. And finally, they said, we like your clips, but we need to know that you can write sports. It's kind of funny because my whole life was sports. I just 
Tennessee and wasn't. So when I was a student at Delaware, I was a junior at Delaware and I applied early for the NBA draft. Um, I wasn't a basketball player at Delaware. There was another editor at the paper named Alan Nanasinkum who a year earlier came up with the idea and never did it. I was like, I'm going to do that. And I wrote a letter to the NBA. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a basketball player at Delaware, which I was. I played for Edna's Edibles of the Intramural <laughs> League. Um, and I believe my talents are ready for the next level. And I wrote this letter. Didn't think much of it. And one day I come back to my dorm room, 13th floor, Christiana Towers. And my, my roommate, Paul Hansen, is like, hey, Pearl, there's a letter from the NBA for you. And I open it and it says, dear Mr. Perlman, as of this date, you're renouncing your eligibility for college basketball, blah, 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 blah. Then I'm home at my home in Mayo Pack at my parents' house, winter break. And I get a call from someone, the head of security at the NBA. Uh, is this Jeff Perlman? Yes. Uh, you Are you sure you want to surrender your eligibility? Yes. And the guy goes, who are you? And I was like, well, I play basketball at Delaware. And this is before Google. So you could kind of get away with this stuff. You know, it wasn't like you can go online and find the Delaware roster. So um, I ended up doing that, wrote it for my college paper. I was applying for a job at SI. They said, why don't you pitch some story ideas? I pitched one story idea, boring, another idea, boring. And I said, well, I once applied for the NBA draft. And the editor, Stephanie Krasnow, said, well, write that. And I wrote that. And that became my first story at SI and got me hired at the magazine eventually. And let me get this, because I remember growing up when I was in the standout advance or the New York Post, you'd cut it out. Even if you went 0 for 4, like you named the box store. When you see the first article, how many Sports Illustrated did you buy? Did you go crazy? Oh, yes, it was huge. It was, a, it was a seminal moment in my life because to me, SI was the Bible. And I loved everything about it. And it was my dream. When I was in uh, high school, I would say to, I met, I had this literal conversation with my mother where I was like, one day I'm going to write for Sports Illustrated. And I didn't grow up in a house where people cared about sports. Like my parents didn't care about sports at all. And telling my mom I was going to write for Sports Illustrated was the equivalent of telling my mom I'm going to act on Broadway or I'm going to have a hit single. You know, I'm going to do a duet with Neil Diamond. Like it was ridiculous. And she said, you need to be realistic. You know, you need to be realistic. Lawyer, doctor, Jewish family, New York. I was like, no, I'm telling you, I'm going to write for Sports Illustrated. So having that first article in was huge. Getting hired by the magazine, I called my mom. And I was like, and I love my mom. She's a great mother. But I was like, I told you. I told you. I knew this was going to happen. It was one. Of, still one of the great moments of my life. When did you know you belong? Because you're a young dude with these legends in Sports Illustrated. When did you know you belong? Was there an article or did someone like maybe not treat you know. like, hey, kid? I think it's one of the funny things about life that you don't realize until you get older. Like, um, I remember when I got there and you're around these writers who you worship and you're, they're your peers, right? And you get promoted. I kept getting promoted and soon you're in meetings with these. They would call you in and they do the state of Sports Illustrated meeting every winter. So I'd be in this room and they would fly all the big guns in. So it'd be like Rick Riley and William Knack and Steve Russian and Frank DeFord and Richard, just these big guns. And you're in this meeting with them. And I used to look at them and think like, whoa, these are the legends. And I actually think, I'm not sure anyone ever feels like they really belong. Like I still suffer a little bit from the imposter syndrome of like, they're all the way up here and I'm here. You know, like they're, I'm not there. I'm not Steve Russian or Rick Riley. Like these guys are the big guns. Like I still have that. And I wonder if they had that about writers who came before them and the writers, maybe Frank DeFord always looked up to whoever, you know, and maybe Rick Riley has always looked up to Frank DeFord and maybe I'm looking up to Rick Riley and maybe some young writers looking up to me. And the truth of the matter is we all poop and none of us know what we're doing. You know, like it's just, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know if you ever actually feel like you belong. I know I don't really, not really. Did you ever regret now? Obviously your career took off. Did you ever regret leaving when you did? Cause you left and you could have been like, 
the OG. You could have been like Rick Riley and stayed there such a long time. Any regrets before you made it? Like, oh crap, why did I leave? No, it, you've done your homework. That's pretty good. Um, I, um, I'm a big fan of yours. I really mean that too. Oh, I appreciate that. I really do. I, um, it's funny. It was always my dream. I got there in 1996, at the end of 96. I left, I think, in the early months of 2003. So it was a short time there. And I left to take a job at Newsday, which confused a lot of people, not even <laughs> doing sports. It was really just roaming around New York City and writing these long features, which I did only for a year. I've never had a regret about it. Um, I just always have kind of been like, uh, I'd rather be somewhere a little short than too long. You know, like, I'd rather be somewhere a little short. And, like, I see a lot of the people at SI, especially when they're doing these major cutbacks. And you're, you've been there for 20 years. And maybe you're making 220000 or whatever more. I don't know. And, and you're kind of stuck a little bit. Like, where are you going to go? And I just, I, I think I always had that in my head a little bit. I never wanted to be somewhere too long. So, actually, no. And it's worked out. I mean, this career is a million times better than I ever thought it would be. Do you ever miss writing articles? Sure, definitely. I do. It keeps you sharp, gives you purpose. Um, definitely. I mean, blogging kind of filled that, has filled that for me. A Substack has kind of filled that for me. But, but I will say, like, I recently did a freelance piece for SI that hasn't run yet. And I hate getting edited. I just hate getting edited. It's not, I'm not saying I'm better than the editing, but I just don't enjoy the process. And SI, especially in the old days, was a very heavy handed place to get edited, like heavy handed. And every story you would hand in, you would just dread the oncoming onslaught that was your editor's pen. And I don't miss that. Like, I like that in books, they leave you alone for two years. And also the longer you do it, the more they seem to trust you with and your style and they kind of give you breathing room. I, I do not enjoy the editing process at all. Let's go to the transition with the books because your, was your first book, the Mets book? Because yeah. that book is just fast. And I'm the biggest Yankee fan in the world. The bad guys one was like, that book's like, holy crap. I probably bought... 20 of that 20 books of that because i had to give that to every met fans like you have to read this just like don't watch a 20 minute you know youtube thing on it look at this book it's incredible when you're doing are you book, saying i owe you money is that i was gonna to do that at the end i was gonna actually okay, actually okay. That. <laughs> did you always know the mets that's my question you always know the mets was gonna be your first book no i didn't even it was never a goal to write books never i never thought about it i never entertained it and um when i was at si toward the end a, uh, a friend of mine, a colleague of mine named John Wertheim had a book come out about women's tennis called Venus Envy. Bad title. Good book. And um, he doesn't like the title either. So that's fair. And um, <laughs> I was like, well, I could, I could write a book. I don't know. It's almost like you're, you're at a point in your life when you're in your like early thirties or late twenties where keeping up seem is important. You know, like as you get older, it doesn't have the same weight, but like, Oh, well he did it. I should probably do it. And it just so happened at that time an agent named Susan Reed approached me and said, have you ever thought about writing books? And I was like, I don't know. And she said, I just think there's a really good book to be written about the 86 Mets. So it wasn't even my idea. And as soon as she said it, I was like, that is a really good idea. And I just dove into it. Met fan, was it difficult writing about a team? Because you weren't, you were fair with it, obviously. You, you ripped up Gary Carter a little bit, but you told the truth. Was it difficult? Like, because like I idolize the Yankees and the 96 team can walk on water. Would it, was it difficult writing about the Mets? No, it's actually funny. Um, so when I was a kid, I really had two teams. Right. Mets later on. And weirdly early, I was a big Seattle Mariners fan, even though okay. I grew up in New York. And here's why. I remember when I was a kid, all these uh, the Mariners were the butt of everyone's jokes because they sucked every year. This is pre Griffey. Mm -hmm. So I was like, well, I'm going to root for the Mariners. I actually owned a Mariners jacket I bought on QVC. I was the only kid in probably New York with a Mariners jacket. <laughs> then they drafted Ken Griffey Jr. And my favorite player as a kid was Ken Griffey Sr. Oh, then 
they drafted my neighbor up the street, Dave Fleming, who wound up pitching for the Mariners. So it all felt kind of, so I was writing baseball for sports illustrated. And I remember a friend of mine said, man, your team looks really good. And I was like, I, I always remember this. It was my college roommate. And I was like, who, like, who's my team? Who are you even talking about? Because I just like, I think most of us, when we were at SI or a lot of us, like once you start covering it, you just kind of stop rooting. Like you just do. Like I didn't, I didn't feel any, I still don't, I don't feel any more allegiances to any teams. I like seeing guys I've covered who are nice people do well, mm-hmm. but I didn't know writing about the A6 Mets. It wasn't like, I was like, like even sitting down with people. Oh my God, Gary Carter. Oh my God, Keith Hernandez. You might have nervousness because of a situation. Maybe Keith Hernandez can be a little awkward, right? Or, and he can. So you're, maybe you're a little nervous about breaking down that wall, but it's never like, oh my God, this was the NL MVP. I can't believe I get to talk to him. I, I, don't, I haven't had that in a long time. That actually goes away like within two seconds because you're like, you don't want to embarrass yourself. That's what happens. I, I think I'm going to name drop, but I just had Mariano on. Right. And I was sitting down with him and I was nervous the whole time driving up there. Like, this is the Sandman. But two seconds into it, I'm like, I don't want to embarrass myself. So you kind of have to put the game face on and they kind of lose that uh, iconic uh, statue, doesn't it? I would say it's more than that, to be honest. Definitely as I've gotten older. Like, okay. Like, Mariano Rivera's who's a great all-time great pitcher, obviously Hall of Fame, unanimous, blah, blah, blah. Like, not to be too, like, whatever. Like, he's just a guy. I mean, like, he is just a guy who was really good at throwing a baseball across a plate. And I just don't think his talent is any more valuable or less valuable than your talent or my talent. And I feel like once you hit that point where you're like, well, this guy's no more... Good example is... I had this happen recently and I never used to be, I don't think I ever would have done this, but like I was, they're making my, my book into a TV show. I was on the set. I see Sally field walking across a lot in the old days, pre being a writer and being older, I would have seen her. My hands would have gone sweaty. I probably would have said nothing. And this time I was like, Hey, Sally field. And she's like, yes. And I'm like, Hey, my name's Jeff Perlman. I wrote the book. I just wanted to introduce myself, reach out my hand. Like, She's just someone who acts, just like I'm just someone who writes. They're no more important or less important. You know, like they may be more famous, but they're not any less. So I just, it just doesn't, you could put me in front of Joe Biden or Donald Trump or Barack Obama. I just, I've kind of gone cool in that area. That's the Hollywood part. I said, you want a little Hollywood on me? (laughs) I don't think they're, I don't think I'm important. Like that's, it's almost the opposite. I think I'm less, I think when I was a young writer, I was really cocky and probably thought I was a shit. And now as you get older, you realize like, Many people can do this job. Many people can write these books. Many You walk into a bookstore. There are thousands and thousands of books. So when someone says, wow, you wrote a book, that's amazing. I'm like, have you been to Barnes & Noble? It's not that amazing. You know, like many people have done it. So I don't know. You live once, you try your best, you hope your kids are happy. And, you know, I, I think you're downplaying your talent. But listen, so the Mets book was huge. That was a huge book. You followed it up with the Bonds book, which I loved. And I remember on Wikipedia, and you know, Wikipedia never lies. It says you interviewed like 520 something people. Is it frustrating or deflating? Like my second book, it didn't do as good as it probably should have. Is that like hard for you? Like, wow, I just invested two years, 500 people. And like, how didn't this blow up? Because the book was awesome. Thank you. Um, Yeah, it sucks. I mean, like uh, the thing was, it came out two weeks after Game of Shadows. I think it was two weeks. And that was really bad. When I knew it was, when 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 I learned about that, I was like, I'm in trouble. Uh, and also, like, it'd be one thing if Game of Shadows was, like, junk. But Game yeah, of Shadows yeah. is awesome. And those guys are <laughs> such good reporters and good people. So, like, you want to be more angry or more resentful, but you can't because they deserved it, you know? And they probably wrote the better book. So, like, it's frustrating. 
you get worried because especially then I was a young author. So I had only written two books and all right. So now I'm one for one. I mean, one for two, you know, like you want to get some hits under your belt. So I was nervous also. And, you know, I just, my next book sold really well. Like I was lucky. Next book sold well. Next book was the cowboy book. Yeah. And that sold really well. Yeah. And then, so now the Clemens book, I didn't read the Clemens book because I was like over steroids, like steroids. Yeah. You're, you're a baseball guy. You're a knowledgeable dude. Both of them belong in the hall of fame or no? I was always a no. I'm only a yes now because I think when they voted in David Ortiz, they basically said, we don't give a shit about steroids. You know, like, I feel like the voters just said, well, this guy used, but he was nice to us. So we're going to let him in. Well, if that's your standard, then you got to put Bond and Clement in. I don't believe in supporting cheaters. I just don't. I don't think it's cool. I don't support it. I know people say everyone cheated, but not everyone cheated. Mm -hmm. Some people made the choice not to cheat because they thought it was wrong. Um, but if you're going to let Ortiz in, how can you not let Bond in? You're vocal in your political stance. Everyone knows it. Uh, behind me is an autographed jersey from Kurt Schilling. Without getting into his politics or things he says, does Kurt Schilling belong in the Hall of Fame? See, that's actually the beauty of why I actually feel good about my stance. I can't stand anything that guy says, right? I put him in the Hall tomorrow. He belongs in. No, but that's a thing. That's mm -hmm. a really important thing. Like, he belongs in the Hall of Fame. Actually, I can't stand him. But it's not about whether I can stand him or not. It's the same thing with Ortiz. It's not about whether he was the nice guy to you or not. You need to have some standards. I don't. I wouldn't put an. I would not have voted Ortiz, but I would vote Schilling. Because it has nothing to do with my my personal stance on him. Back to book writing. I just finished up and I tweeted about a three ring circus: Kobe, Shaq, Phil, and the crazy years of the Lakers dynasty. What made you want to dive into this time? Because you already did Showtime. Was it part two? Did you feel like you had to do it? Well, it was kind of the same reasons in a lot of ways. Like um, I did Showtime because huge characters. So you had. Magic, you had Riley, you had Kareem, you had Jerry Buss, uh, huge market, successful team, et cetera, et cetera. Well, you look at the follow-up, like Shaq and Kobe, Phil Jackson, huge character, successful team, drama. Um, it was one of the most miserable book experiences I've had, actually. It was not a fun book to report at all. There were fun moments, but it was hard. Um, but people liked it. So that was good. People loved it. Now, was the biggest hurdle was the Kobe thing that Kobe wouldn't be interviewed? Was that the biggest uh, hurdle of his? I mean, Magic didn't talk for, for Showtime. Um, you know what? Sometimes it's hard when, like, I'm, you're probably this way too, judging from your backdrop here. Like, I'm a nostalgia guy. Like, I'm a huge nostalgia guy. I'm too nostalgic. I'm nostalgic for sports, I'm nostalgic for my high school yearbook, I'm nostalgic for food that reminds me of something, I'm nostalgic for songs that remind me of something. Show me like Whitney Houston's debut album and I'm 13 again, listening to Whitney Houston, you know, like stuff mm -hmm. like that. Show me Run DMC. I'm like... And I didn't have nostalgia for Shaq Kobe really because I was an adult when that happened. So it was a little harder to muster up. And also like, I, I enjoy writing biographies of people more than teams um, because the challenge with team books is even if the seasons are drastically different, they can't be that drastically different because you're still playing the same teams. You're still having the same matchups. You're still writing about Shaq scoring 28 against the Nuggets and Kobe going for 40 against whoever. So it's really is hard work with team books to mix it up and make it more interesting. And I just, I was more fascinated by the Showtime Lakers on the surface than I was uh, Shaq Kobe Lakers. Your book finished, I think like eight months before Kobe tragically passes away. Did you face, face any backlash? Because the book, you were brutally honest with the early Kobe. He was he was difficult. He was an asshole. A lot of his teammates said, was you face any uh, negative feedback with that? Like some, but not, I thought it was going to be really bad. 
and it was it was bare minimal. It was a couple of people on Twitter, you know, which comes you could yeah, of course. say the sky is blue, and they'll be like, hey, "You're an idiot." <laughs> uh, overall, it was pretty good. I was very preemptive about it. I really was. Like, I, I when after he died, we decided to write a new sort of prologue, just explaining. It was true, and it was also a real just self preservation that this is only a period of his life. Uh, that this tragedy happened. You should not judge Kobe Bryant based on who he was at. Like you shouldn't judge any of us based on who we are at 18 to 24. You know, it's not a fair look at the whole body. And then I, I definitely went on social media and sort of explained to people where the book was coming from. And just so you know, this is a sliver of time. And the guy who was 40 seemed like a much different human being than the guy who's 22. And I think doing that uh, prevented maybe a little bit of the backlash. I just didn't want anyone to think I... I my number one thing was I didn't want people to think here's some asshole capitalizing on Kobe's death and rushing a book out a couple of months later. Like I, I, that was really, I didn't want that. So. And no one's going to look like, Oh, he did this for two years. And I'm going to look at that thing. And be like, look, Kobe just died. They think a right. book takes two weeks to bang out. Right. Hey, finish this for me. I'm the biggest Kentucky guy. The way you love Delaware coach Cal can walk on water. He coached the nets. If the nets draft Kobe Bryant, what happens? It changes basketball law, but what do you think? Do you think sure. he plays for them? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Of course he does. That was all bluff from his agent. But um, oh. all right. Nets draft Kobe Bryant. See, this is the thing. You're not going to like, you may like this answer. I think if the Nets draft Kobe Bryant, Kobe Bryant basically becomes a Vince Carter type player. Like the Nets ruin him. He hates playing for Calipari. His teammates are like whoever, Kendall Gill and Sam Cassell, like good players, but he's not going to have the shack around mm -hmm. him and, you know, different guys and, I think circumstance matters a ton. Like I really do like a ton. And I just think young Kobe unleashed without any discipline is shooting 25 times a game. And he's probably shooting 38% from the field. And like, he'll be in the hall of fame. He obviously was going to be a hall of fame player, but like, you know, I don't want to be traded like after five years. Right. Yeah. He's like, I'm sick of this crap. And then they <laughs> trade him to like Toronto and he's, you know, like, Shaq was going to be great wherever he was because Shaq was just a game-changing player physically. And Kobe was a... I mean, Kobe obviously is one of the all-time greats. It still would have been one of the all-time greats. I just think he needed... People don't talk enough about the favor Dell Harris did for him early on, which was limiting his minutes, mm -hmm. making him understand you cannot shoot every single time you touch the ball, pulling him at times when he needed to be pulled. I don't think Calipari at his age with his NBA experience would have had the guts to do that. What's one thing, and I'm stealing this from Dan Patrick, one thing you want to ask Kobe? Is there one question you like, I wish I could just ask him one thing? Yeah, I mean, it's not one question, but I would love to know how he looks back at that time period. Like, again, like, I I was an asshole at that age. I was a young asshole reporter at the National Tennessean who thought he was the greatest writer <laughs> in the world. And I was, I was insufferable. I, I was insufferable, like, you, I, just the worst. And I would love to hear Kobe talk about that period. You know, like... And you read him some of these quotes and some of these stories, and I would love to hear his take on it, you know? Um, yeah, I just, I just think it's 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 so freaking sad. Like, it's so profoundly sad. And, like, I just, I, when I think of Kobe, this isn't what you asked, but I always picture him with his daughter sitting courtside, giving talking to her about basketball. There's this one clip. Oh, that, yeah, the viral one when he's yeah. motioning his head up and down. Like, yep, you're right, you're like, right. It's crazy. Like, some people die... And you quickly accept it in your head. Usually older people, like Betty White dies. All right, Betty White died. She was 99 years old. I can accept that in my head. When I see clips of Kobe on a late night talk show or sitting courtside, 
it still doesn't feel like he's dead. And I don't mean that in the tribute way, like mm -hmm. he's with us forever. I mean, like, it doesn't seem right. You know, and like his little daughter, it doesn't seem right. So uh, the whole thing sucks. You know? When do you know, I have a ton of authors on, when do you know when a book is done? Any nervousness when you hit send, like, okay, the book's done, I can't edit it anymore. Any nervousness with that? Uh, no, I'm about to go. So I have a Bo Jackson book coming out in October. And I'm getting the edits back in nine days, right? So then you go through the edits and you're like, all right, so this is kind of final. And do I really like how this sounds? And is this really the point I'm trying to make? And then when you send it back and eventually an editor will say to you, okay, we're closing. This is your last chance to read the book. You're just like, okay, okay, send. And then I'll be like, I'll be like <laughs> saying to my wife, like, I don't know this. I don't know if this is, yeah, it's, yeah, it's nerve wracking. How fun was it doing the Bo Jackson book? Cause he is, he's become more iconic later on in life, right? I think so. I think um, it was cool. The thing that was good for me was I wrote it during COVID or I reported during COVID, which sucked. And toward the end, I finally was able to go to Alabama where he's from in Bessemer, Alabama. And just walking around his old neighborhood, I literally, he grew up on this like rural street, middle of nowhere. And, oh, sorry about that, man. And um, he grew up in this rural street, middle of nowhere. And I'm literally knocking on doors. Hey, my name is Jeff Perlman. I'm working on this biography of Bo Jackson. And it was awesome. Like there were still people there who remembered him and told stories. And like, that's my love. Like my love more than the writing and more than the sitting in office digging is like knocking on doors, getting memories, talking to people. And it was so nice after this long stretch of COVID to actually be able to go. It's funny. Like where, where's your dream place you wanted to go after yeah. the lockdown? <laughs> that's Mer, Alabama. That is where I dream of going. But I love those trips. I do. I love those trips so much. Did you get to talk to Bo? I only talked to him once when he called me to tell me he wouldn't talk to me. And Aww. he was cool though. We talked for about 40 minutes because I'd sent him my books in a letter. And he was like, look, I don't, I don't mind you writing it, but I'm not going to help you. Like a lot of people have been wanting to write books with me and I just, I'm, I don't want to do it. I like my life. Um, but he was nice and he was polite. And uh, I understand like someone comes along, you don't know him. He's like, I want to write, I'm going to write the definitive biography of you. And you're like, who the fuck says that? You're like, <laughs> like, I don't know you. I always understand it. I hope Let he doesn't pass this. Because, you know, you're a few years older than me, but you played Nintendo. Would you have brought up Tecmo Bowl and his player being the most dominant player? I always act like it's a book. Yeah. It's in the book, of course. You can't talk about Bo Jackson without Tecmo Bowl. Cannot. Impossible. Impossible. You, I, I want to talk a little bit about your podcasting because I've been listening to it, and Lee Monville is like, for me, you and him are like sports writers. He wrote the Ted Williams book, the Big Bam, the Manute Bowl book. I read all your books. Your podcast with him was so cool. And he was someone you looked up to, right? Oh, yeah. He's great. I mean, he's legend. And I mean, everyone's legend in your mind. You know, like he was like, when I got to SI, he was a big gun. He also happens to be just a wonderfully nice person. Uh, he's a great author. He knows how to research, knows how to report. I mean, like for guys like me, like I grew up reading SI and reading Lee Montville and studying his, like, I didn't just read those articles. I studied those articles and I would go through the articles how is this transition? What words is he using? You know, same with all those writers back then. And um, it's cool, actually. There's a real kinship. I think there's a real kinship among old SI writers, hopefully myself included, where you feel like you wrote for this great magazine when it really mattered and every word counted. And I remember Gary Smith, one of the all-time greats, saying, like, every word matters. Like, every word matters. And that's one thing all those guys seem to have in common. Like, they really measured their words with their, the written word. 
And that really did it for me, that idea. Two writers slinging Yang is your podcast. I want to ask you a personal podcast interview question because this is my side job. I just do this as a complete hobby, something fun. I make awesome. a few dollars. Yeah. I get to Same with me. Yeah, I my get podcast to- is a hobby and I make zero dollars. Yeah. <laughs> um, we've had like 12 of the same guests on. Jane Levy, Wally Matthews, uh, the guy Brad who wrote the Wax Pack, oh. Anthony DiCamino. What kind of research do you do? Because he was my concern interviewing you. You're, a, you're overly gracious with your time. You can have a person who has one listeners or... Michael K, who has a ton of using it. You're on Dan Patrick all the time. What kind of research do you do to stick out? I don't want to be like, hey, Jeff, tell me how the Lakers, how they, how they offered you the HBO show. That's always my dilemma with a guy like you. So yeah. what kind of research do you do on, on a guy and try to be different and stand out? Well, I mean, I, I have an account. Do you have a newspapers.com account? Yes, I do. <laughs> newspapers.com is gold. So I always I go and try to find their oldest story, their oldest byline. You know, so I can ask about, oh, I found this story about that you wrote. I remember like Judy Batista. Okay. Writes for NFL Network, NFL Network and NFL.com. I found an article she was quoted in about the vending machines at the University of Miami when she was a student there. And she was like, oh, my God. And I just think like, I like finding little things that can surprise people or that shows. I, I said this to someone the other day. The, the more you can show someone that you're genuinely interested, the better your interview will be. You know, like, like you even saying to me, like, you left SI early, like you left SI early. Well, that shows that, like, you must have read something or heard something that told you that I left SI early. Like, most people wouldn't know that. So whenever I try to interview someone, I want to have details. Like, I always use this as a, as a weak example, but I remember years and years ago, I had to do a story on Latroy Hawkins when he was pitching for the Mets, also a former Yankee. Mm-hmm. And um, I, he's from Gary, Indiana. And I had been to Gary, Indiana a few years earlier for a story. And the first thing I said to Latroy, I was like, you're from Gary. He's like, yeah. I was like, oh, I was just there like a year ago. He's like, you were in Gary? Because Gary's a really shithole city. It's really sad. And just even that little sliver of being like, I am separating myself by showing you that I know you're from Gary and I can identify with this goes a long way. So I just, I try to find little nooks about writers. You did that with Lee Monville. You're like, hey, you asked about, he got some award uh, at his school like 30 years ago. Oh, yeah. And you asked him where the award was. He's like, uh, you, you, you know, Jeff, I was divorced twice. She might have like, it was like a little flack. He must have won. <laughs> that was newspapers.com. I found that newspapers.com. Yeah. Any dream interviews you want? Any guests? Like, oh, I wish I could just interview blank. Yeah, the couple. I would love. So my son and I are very much into, uh, we're kindred spirits of hip hop. Okay. And uh, like we were just listening today, driving home from basketball uh, to Kendrick Lamar. I think Kendrick Lamar would be an amazing person to talk to rap, uh, talk writing with. I think J. Cole would be a great guest. I've been trying to get Chuck D to do the concert. Uh, to do the concert, to do the podcast. Um, I love that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, I love like different mediums uh, and the thought that goes into writing. So uh, hip hop is kind of my thing right now where I like a lot of interesting writers. Would you ever do a hip hop book instead of a sports book? Oh yeah. I really want to write Tupac. Really? I really want to write Tupac. Oh yeah. Tupac is one of my two or three favorite artists of all time and fascinates me. So uh, yeah, stay tuned, hopefully. When's the Bo Jackson book coming out? October. Ready to finish up with some quick hit questions? Fire away. This has been joyful. I appreciate that. You and Jeff and I, you and I are at a bar in New York City. You want to impress everyone there. Who's the coolest person in your phone that if you text them, they would text you right back? Oh, would they text me right back? Well, you have like an hour. We're at a bar for an hour. You want to impress everyone there. No one cares that you wrote the Mets book. No one cares what I do for work. You're like, watch who I can text. I mean, I have cool numbers in my phone. I don't know how fast it's like uh <laughs> Jerry West is in my phone. I mean, no, no one under the age of whatever is going to really give a shit. 
I mean, I have like half the cast of Winning Time now on my phone. So if well, I think Jerry West would impress people. You do? I think so. I got a. Uh, I have Action Bronson's number. Is that good? I don't know who that is. Have, uh, okay, okay. I have uh, Woj. I have Adrian Dantley. Well, Woj is a good one because we'd be at sports bar, so everyone's gonna know who Woj and Jerry West are. Yeah, I mean, I name a sports writer in the common era. I'm probably if I'm if I don't have him on my phone, I have him at least. I'm like one degree of Matt, you know, my friend John Wertheim and I have a deal. We always trade numbers. If I give him a number, yeah, like you have a number for blank. I'm like, you have to send me a number back. So the best trade we ever made was Jerry West for Sir Mix-a-Lot, which is one of the great trades of all time. And now did either of you guys text? Did you text Sir? I, he didn't, I got the Sir Mix-a-Lot number from him. He needed a Jerry West number. I know he called Jerry West. It was for a story. And I think I texted Sir Mix-a-Lot once and never heard back. <laughs> Wait, I'll tell you my game real quick. So I usually do my show from a bar, uh, two bars in the city, give me my own floor. Uh, Legends and Jack Dempsey's give me my own floor, do it. So we're there. And if the guest is having a few drinks, like I had Oakley on and he's having a few drinks. So, you know, we have two, three beers. I have the guy give him a shot. And then I finish up with that question and he'll be like, MJ. I'm like, you don't know MJ. Call him right now. Half the time they're a little in the bag. They'll call the guy right there. It's like, wow. yeah. It's, and then I try to get the number and I usually don't. Yeah. How about this? Coolest piece of memorabilia you own. Uh, I'm not a huge, enormous memorabilia guy. I have two things. One, I'll show you, even though this is podcast. I have, I do have my father-in-law years ago bought me when the bad guys one came out. It's a signed '86 Mets ball. That's you a know, really cool one, and it's sentimental because it's you wrote a book right. on it. Yeah, it's more nice because my father-in-law got it for me, and I already have a close relationship with him. And the other thing I have, which is probably my favorite, is there was a uh, there's a catcher. He's now a coach of the Braves, journeyman catcher named Sal Fasano. Okay, and. Um, he played with a million teams. So. You played with the Expos for some reason. I just no. sense. Okay. Royals, A's, Phillies, Yankees. He played for everyone at some point. If you Google him, you'll see. And um, Sal's my favorite guy I've ever covered in sports. He's the best. He's just the best. And um, my wife ended up becoming a big Sal Fasano fan. And him and <laughs> her and Sal's wife on Facebook. And Sal's the best. Sal came to, Sal's the only author, only athlete I've ever covered who came to one of my book events. I mean, he's just a mention. Wow, okay. And, um, I have hanging. I have on my mantle downstairs an autographed Sal Fasano bat that I gave to my wife for like a birthday, and it's oh no for Hanukkah, and it says, <laughs> "Happy Hanukkah." Use this on Jeff if you need to. <laughs> Sal Fasano, and then it has a New Testament Bible verse because I was religious, and there's a Happy Hanukkah New Testament Bible verse. Use the bat on Jeff. I love that bat. See, that's I don't collect memorabilia. The only thing I have over here is two seats from Yankee Stadium, old Yankee Stadium, but everything I get is. Like whoever comes on my show, hey, sign a jerseys. So that's the stuff that hangs up. But I'm not remember really, but I love that back because I make them sign stupid shit. Like I had a Hoist Gracie on. I made him sign the gee like to Mike. You can probably beat me up, Hoist Gracie. Like oh. stuff like that. Yeah, 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 right. How about this? One sporting event in history you wish you could have witnessed live? This is the top of my head. I think it would have been cool to go to uh, Jackie Robinson's first game. with. The I get Dodgers. that a lot. I get that a real lot. Also, like, I feel like 42, the movie, mangled that whole season, that whole story so much. I'd be fascinated to hear what the actual reaction was to Jackie Robinson coming out of the dugout for the first time in Brooklyn, you know? I think that's a great – I've gotten that answer a lot. That's one of the – probably the best answers you can get. It really is. Yeah. For me, it's always Babe Ruth calling his shot in the 32 World Series. He didn't call a shot. Though. I know, I know, but I want to be there and be like, he did, because that's like my – but then you'd be like, Babe Ruth would come up to the plate and not call his shot, and you'd be like, oh. oh <laughs> I wasted my I go home thing? now? Can we go home now? I'm good. <laughs> How about this one? Last one. Uh, coolest meal you had with a celebrity, because you'll an athlete, because you'll sit down with them sometimes for hours. I know you and Phil talked for, hung out for ten hours. What's the coolest like uh, meal you had with somebody? Interestingly, I am t- tomorrow. I'm having Mexican food with Sean Green, which is kind of funny. 
Um, the well, former Blue Jay outfielder? What? The former Blue Jay outfielder? Right. That's cool. That's really cool. And, and fellow Jew. Um, <laughs> but we just, we've been friends since I moved out here. Um, but that doesn't count. I, I probably would say Phil Jackson. I mean, I went, I flew to Montana. It was for the Three Ring Circus book. I thought I was going to get an hour with him. He, uh, he met me at a coffee shop. And then he said, I'm just going to drive you around. And we literally drove around for, I think, five or six hours. We had lunch uh, by the side of Flathead Lake, I think. And then later, he's like, he's like, you want to come back to the house? Okay, I go back to the house. And then he's like, why don't we get dinner later? And I was like, cool. We just had dinner. And he was like, um, he's just a really good company. Like, he's actually a really nice guy. I guess I had, like, I had lunch with Jeannie Boss and Linda Ramis. Jeannie's, they're both delightful. You know, like, but I, I just like, I just like a good... I always say, this is the thing I always say. This has nothing to do with your question, really. I would rather have McDonald's and good conversation than a great meal with some douchebag. You know what I mean? Like, a great meal is overrated. The, the food is overrated. The company and, and, and conversation can be gold. So those two examples, they were all gold. Oh, I'll tell you one more. Can I give you oh, one more? Of course. I, this is the I forgot. This is number one by far. I don't remember what we ate, though. I think there was food there. <laughs> okay. I'm working for Sports Illustrated. This is the best. This, this is it by far. Okay. I'm working for Sports Illustrated years ago. An editor, I was young. I was probably 26, 27. Editor, Rich O'Brien, he's like, do you want to go meet Muhammad Ali? Yeah, sure. He's coming to town. He's coming to New York City. And uh, he's promoting some of some the building of his uh, museum in Kentucky. Uh, do you want to cover it? Okay. I go down, wherever it is, I don't even remember, New York City, some office building. It's a table. It's me, Dick Shap, legendary journalist, also a hero of mine, Muhammad Ali, uh, Muhammad Ali's wife, and a publicist, okay? I'm literally sitting between Dick Shap and Muhammad Ali. I'm like 27 years old. We're sitting there talking. You know, maybe there was, we'll, we'll pretend there was finger food just so it feels like a meal. And we're all sitting there talking. Muhammad Ali, obviously, Parkinson's, you know, and... um the PR guy starts talking and he says something like blah, blah, blah. And he goes, right champ. Right. And I look at Muhammad Ali and he's sleeping. He's, and he goes like this, he wakes up and he goes, Muhammad Ali. He goes, there's a black guy, a Mexican guy and a Puerto Rican guy in a car. Who's driving. And the PR guy goes, who's driving champ. And Ali goes, the police. <laughs> and then he goes back to sleep. Pretends to sleep. <laughs> One of those memorable moments of my life. So, that was and I would say, oh, go ahead. No, I said, that's an awesome final answer. How can you top that? Muhammad Ali. I will say the other thing, though, is that when I was also young at SI, they needed someone to go. Walter Payton was dying. And they wanted someone to go out and talk to him. And they said, do you want to go talk to Walter Payton? This is before I wrote a book about Walter Payton. And I went out and I sat across the desk from him and he was shrunken. His eyes were yellow and jaundiced. And uh, it was insanely sad but memorable sitting across from Walter Payton when he was, uh, and the funny thing is, I remember thinking at the time, wow, he's so old. And he was like 46, you know, like I'm 49, you know, like maybe he wasn't that old or yeah. maybe I'm very old, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Dude, this was a pleasure. You're so gracious to every single person who writes to you. You write back to everybody. You're on a gazillion shows. Thank you for doing this, man. I really appreciate it. Not that you need to, but you want to plug where you can listen to your podcast and obviously buy all your books and the Bo Jackson book soon, which I cannot wait for. Thanks, man. No, I, uh, you can just follow me on Twitter at Jeff Perlman. And I do have a, I have a podcast called Two Writers Slinging Yang. It comes out every week. It's me and another writer. 
And uh, is it true you're sending me the autographed Dan Izzo jersey as a reward for being on the show? Is that what you said? But it says to Mike, uh, I think it says to Mike, my best friend. I'm so comfortable with that. <laughs> Dude, this was such a blast, man. Thank you so much for doing this, brother. My pleasure. My pleasure. Bye, Jeff. See you later, man.